0: From Number 5 Chambers, I'm Richard Kimblin, and this is the Planning Podcast. In this edition, we turn to Cities with Ben Rogers, Director of the Centre for London. We explore major issues arising from the pandemic. Is it the death of cities? Spoiler alert – no. We look at suppressed demand, the impacts of planning reform, zoning, design codes, and participation by communities. We look at planning levers beyond regulation and how tax, including local taxes, could be a tool to promote or disincentivize different uses and developments. There is a lot in it. So here we go. Hi, Ben, good morning, how are you? I'm very well, beautiful sunny day today. Sunny, sunny, optimism. That sounds uh, like a place that we need to be today. Thank you for being with us. Now, Ben,
1: you are
0: the director of Centre for London.
1: I set up Centre for London uh, almost 10 years ago. Uh, We are London's dedicated think tank. We develop new solutions to London's big problems, and we do that through our research events, sort of convening and influencing. We're a a charity. I think what makes us special is we're not a membership organisation, so we are disinterested. And we're very good at bringing different bits of London and different London leaders from different sectors together around a table and using our research and I hope our policy now some creativity to find solutions and you know, develop new ways of tackling things.
0: Now, Ben, I'm familiar with many
1: of your reports and the material which
0: you have in the FT from time to time. I think it would help if we put on our website a link to your website so that listeners can follow that up if they want to and see the exciting material which you've produced uh, over time that would be great that'd be great so Ben uh, you've also been doing op-eds from time to time in in the FT and um, your thinking in that regard is out there and in particular I noticed that you were uh, writing a little earlier on in the pandemic during the course of May uh, about the effect
1: of the pandemic on global cities Shall we start off there? Yeah, let, let's. And I'm pessimistic in the short run and more optimistic in the long run. I mean, you can see how a lot of people are speculating is this the end of the city? Yeah, what with social distancing and the sort of collapse in public transport use. You've people got used to working from home and working remotely. Uh, you can see why you know, business owners and mayors are sort of you know, worrying about the future of the city. And if I was you know, owning property in Central London. I would be, you know, a little concerned at least in the short run. But I, I actually think lots of these things represent a big gain. Clearly, you know, it suddenly seemed mad that we were all commuting into the city every day, leaving our homes empty for half a day and leaving office space empty for half a day. Um, so I can see a sort of big gain in 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 that regard. I also think there'll be a role for cities in the future. I think that, um, you know, you do need to meet face-to-face. I think that's particularly important for for younger people. And I think it still remains the case that, you know, most innovation happens or a lot of innovation happens face-to-face and cities are the only place where you get that sort of, you know, really intense face-to-face contact. I think what we might see is a city which uses space more efficiently where people go in, you know, once or twice a week and that will free up room for, you know, greater... Number of users, or to convert properties uh, currently used for the business more for homes, and I think also cities will probably get younger. I'm not sure that's necessarily completely a good thing, but um, I, I I suspect that you know old, particularly this thing proves to be really you know endemic and, and we struggle to get rid of it, or or we is followed up by something else. I can imagine a situation where it's already the case that cities you know attract younger people in particular, and then younger people, I'm afraid, are particularly good at innovation and and. You know, productivity, but I can see that becoming sort of more pronounced. That in the case will be a boost. I think the other thing to say is that clearly this is a big blow to some of the things that cities do very well and some particularly sort of urban industries, you know, entertainment, hospitality, performance, culture, all of that. But cities are also the centres, particularly London is a centre of digital industries and digital innovation. And this will be a huge boost to that sector. Uh, in a way, which means that you know, actually, it might advantage cities which have got strong digital bases. And again, I think because London is already a sort of leading brand around the world, leading institutions, leading cultural institutions, leading educational institutions. If the whole world is going to start going online to see performances or study at universities, you know, they're going to go to LSE, UCL, the Royal Opera House. So paradoxically, you can imagine how. The further digitalization of work and leisure could actually end up giving some leading digital cities a bit of a boost.
0: Wow, that's that. There's a lot there, isn't there? That's, <laughs> let's have a think about some of those points, which are just fantastic. I mean, the, the starting point, of course, is that um, we have cities with these wonderful arteries uh, in the nature of tube lines, uh, mass transport, and um, they're relatively empty and we have these immense spaces for people to gather together and work in its offices and they're relatively empty. And that's that's your short-term hit alongside wonderful organisations such as everything from Sadler's Wells to the Royal Opera House, empty. Yeah. Uh, so short-term pessimism, but you're looking ahead and your view is that there is change and that the, the younger Part of the population will be keen to get back, keen face to face, and that there will be an evolution.
1: That's right. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's so much demand on central London that it's hard to, really hard to imagine it becoming a sort of tumbleweed city, you know, really, because even if some people choose to leave, you know, there's so much sort of a suppressed demand for these spaces um, that you know, others will sort of move in, you know, and you've just got to sort of share. An amount of sort of you know infrastructure and you know, investment that's got into that which i think will for a long time always be be valued and needed so and cities do don't they go through sort of cycles where they become um very expensive almost too successful then there's a bit of a collapse and sort of you know perhaps younger and and innovations sort of move in and then um they they boom again and you know and that seems there seems to be that we went through that in the sort of Collapse of cities in the sort of seventies and and, and early eighties, and then they resuscitated themselves, and maybe, maybe we'll see some of that dynamic. I don't want to underplay how you know how dire it it seems, and I mean particularly for London in one regard in particular, which is that it has a very sort of unresilient funding model. I mean, we you take New York or Paris. The mayor and the city governments raise a lot of money locally and they've got sort of large number of different sources of income. Well, you know, London only really has two sources of income, or the mayor only has two sources of income, you know, money that he gets from government and money from the farebox box, TfL, and the fare has absolutely collapsed. and you know, The government's had to come in and uh, quite rightly bail TfL out, but we're sort of slightly at the mercy of government, and that's probably not great given the sort of political complexion of the government and the, and the mayoralty. And yeah, so I think, I think the sort of the, just the sheer sort of lack of resilience of the sort of government business model in London has been sort of sorely exposed by this crisis. And when we, we do need to move to a sort of, I think a sort of, yeah, uh, you know, I, think the, I think the mayor and London government just need a bit more control over taxes raised in the capital. They should all be going to central government. Right. So the, the, the public
0: sector uh, support uh, is not as strong and resilient. No. Uh, in London as one sees in some other global cities, which I suppose takes, I mean, that's not going to change instantly. So one perhaps has to think about the effectiveness of innovators. Uh, and I, I do wonder whether there is a really positive story that might unfold if one thinks about areas such as Clerkenwell through to Shoreditch next door to each other. that That's a story of Previous industrial uses and turning into really innovative mixes of uh, uses and activities, uh, everything creative that you can think of, alongside the digital. And uh, aren't aren't those relatively young industries populated by relatively young people just going to carry on?
1: Uh, you know, I think so. And what would be interesting to see is whether uh, that spreads to you know, the older districts. You know. And- Oxford Street, you know, will be sort of a case in point where it just feels right now often a slightly sort of sad and I think, you know, not very well used space, you know, and and will the Oxford Street of the the future, you know, include some retail, some housing, you know, and a lot of sort of digital spaces for sort of startups, uh, you know, question mark.
0: The government certainly seems to have uh, laid out a route to that sort of outcome by introducing a new class to permit flexible switching between a whole range of uses, which uh, certainly one uh, would not have imagined to be so flexibly interchangeable. Shops, financial professional, restaurants, cafes, offices, light industry, health, all of those things can now interchange. And uh, with your Oxford Street example, one can imagine a great variety and vitality of uses springing up without much planning intervention
1: well i think i think be wary of unintended consequences and i'm i'm not a huge fan of permitted development when it comes to housing but uh you know i think that vision is a sort of a attractive one you know and it's often puzzled me you know why if you sort of walk down oxford street at nine o'clock at night it's completely dead you know and why couldn't you know you it's not beyond the sort of ken of Of man to um, imagine how you might take, I don't know, John Lewis, and in the evening, you know, the the ground floor becomes a a series of sort of pop up restaurants, you know, with sort of stalls serving different food. I mean, that that wouldn't be at all hard, but planning permission, planning use classes don't currently allow that. So I'm in favor of that sort of innovation and, and, you know, and and the much greater use in particular, sort of meanwhile space. Which is a slightly different thing from what we're talking about, but we've done work on Meanwhile space in in London, and that's another thing which is hugely under underutilised. So yes, I'm I'm think I support that, and as I say, I'm more sceptical about permitted development when it comes to sort of housing, so I think it just allows you know cowboys to do some pretty shoddy shoddy things.
0: Well, the the, the cowboys you refer to will shortly be allowed to build up and add stories to. Uh, all sorts of development and go up to thirty meters high
1: yeah uh, indeed well we yes, yes I think I think uh, as I say i, I'm, I think we might look a bit harder when it comes to sort of housing i think it's just a sort of has a side in nature
0: there is the building better beautiful commission and you have some observations to make in that regard don't you
1: yeah which I'm pretty enthusiastic about that actually I, mean, I think the government has sort of two instincts when it comes to planning you know, one is to go down quite a conventional through sort of deregulatory route I'm not sure that will Give us great outcomes. I'm not sure, actually, in the end, the sort of British public will buy it. Um, people care too much about what goes on in their local neighbourhoods. Uh, but the other one set out in, in the Building Better, Beautiful Commission is to move from the very reactive character of our planning system in this country to something which is more strategic and where decisions are made upstream. You know, so you know it is the nature of our planning system that. Decisions are made on a sort of case by case basis, um, and there's sort of huge room for negotiation in most cases when it comes to planning permission. And that is not the model in other countries, where you get you know much more use of sort of codes and much more by right development, and the crucial decisions are made upstream in in the form of, sort of local plans and and zoning frameworks. And I'm for that because that's more predictable, it lowers the cost of of entering the market, it lowers, you know, it lowers the risks of development. And I think it allows for a more constructive engagement of the public, you know, upstream in setting plans and setting codes and setting zones. It's it will be a huge cultural change. And and actually you're much closer to these things than than me. And you know, I'd be interested to hear from you actually how how likely it is that we can really sort of create that. I think what is a sort of big sort of cultural and you know institutional and sort of legal change in in, in this country but if we can do it I'm I'm all for it and I think we'll get uh, a more constructive more strategic planning system and one which potentially has sort of much better outcomes and it allows allows planners to think about neighborhoods or boroughs or even the whole city you know as a whole and think about things like you know not only the sort of the mix but also design codes which I think will be popular with the public yeah so I'm I I very much support is going down that that route if we can.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. It's really fascinating for this reason that uh, there is a real prospect that uh, such approaches will come forward in the relatively near future associated with wider planning reform. And it's really fascinating from my own perspective, currently being involved in the South Oxfordshire local plan and seeing engagement with that form of forward planning that's your point that communities are interested in seeing uh, and being involved with the way in which zoning the, yeah the future planning the allocations come forward and uh, typically one sees well in excess of 100 people somewhere between 100 and 200 people watching that uh, examination in public Take place via YouTube. You can see how many people are watching it, and it's obvious that there is that interest. Yeah. The point which troubles me still is that that that's South Oxfordshire, which has particular characteristics in terms of uh, education uh, and work patterns. If one takes other parts of the country which are post-industrial, the extent of engagement and the capacity to engage is different. And as somebody who hails from a northern mill town, I'm familiar with that. And what strikes me is that that, that is to a degree recognised by government who have increased the funding which is available to create neighbourhood plans. And and that, I think, is really quite instructive. What's being said there is extra encouragement is needed. I think, I think that's absolutely right. In those locations uh, to facilitate... The, the progress of of local forward planning, and and the story I think is is different uh, in different localities, and needs different measures. And so,
1: cities are so different. That's absolutely right. And, and um, there has been a sort of study done by uh, Publica, I think, supported by Trust for London, looking at neighbourhood planning in London. You know, and sure enough, where you've got neighbourhood plans, it's largely the more affluent areas. But as you all feel right to say, there's certainly be interest in, in amongst poorer communities in, in those sorts of decisions. People have very strong views actually about things like you know the provision of affordable housing in their local neighborhoods. But you probably need to sort of engage people in, in a different way and perhaps throw a bit more resource at it and have a bit more you know expert guidance. But people are hugely sort of you know, agitated, engaged in those communities about you know particularly the fact that they their, their kids can't afford to stay in them. All the, local, no, all the local jobs. I think it's, it's less about them not being interested. It's more about people from those communities needing a bit more sort of guidance and support and navigating the process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely my impression. And once it's available, the impact can be truly extraordinary. And I've seen that in inquiries where not usually housing development, but other forms of a potentially quite intrusive development have been very effectively engaged with yeah. by communities in South Wales in the northeast.
1: Yeah. And I, I also, I mean, I do think that people care hugely about design and form, and you know, our planning system, you know, is very focused on use classes and and, and uses made of different buildings. And clearly, people don't want like polluting factories next to them. But I think people are actually a bit more relaxed about. The uses to which buildings are put and i, I suppose i'd favor it, sort of, um, um, anything which encouraged greater quality of design and a bit less emphasis on use uh, you know i think all the evidence is the most successful parts of cities in particular you know have, have changed the, the, the use of the building to which the buildings are put so changes over time i mean that that's partly what makes them resilient and i, did, I actually wonder whether we could move from a system which relies very heavily on use class to determine the use of a building to one which relies a bit more on tax, so that you could have sort of you know generic, quite generic use classes. And then if you felt as the you know as, as the planning authority or, or the, the local government that it was too much resi and not enough workspace, you know it's, it, you you would actually increase council tax on new resi development and lower it on new business development as opposed to sort of. Changing use classes—that's something which has never been tried. I don't even know if they do it in other countries. As I suspect they probably do because they're slightly more flexible about these things. But I think that's an interesting thing to explore.
0: So, what you've pointed to twice now is is the interaction between one lever—planning regulation—and another lever—finance—and the ability to either fund things publicly or to support or suppress particular activities or uses so your example in respect of the way in which funding is divided up locally or nationally in respect of cities that's one example where Mm. there was uh, you you raised that earlier and this really fascinating idea you've just explained is the interaction between planning levers and potential uh, financial incentives and disincentives which would promote Or disincentivise, and you're saying that that's quite a flexible lever, which is adjustable as you as
1: you go along. I I, I think so. I mean, you know, we 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 are a terribly, terribly centralised country by international standards, and our cities, and this is true of London, but it's also true of the other great cities. I know, are very, very underpowered. Um, You know, they have no control over health services. I mean, Manchester's now got a bit or over any other areas, climate and justice, um, and, you know, risible powers over, over, over tax. And I just think giving them a bit more power and letting them, you know, experiment and innovate would be a good thing.
0: Well, well that's a very timely observation. Let's, let's float that via the podcast and see if uh, anybody's listening. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, ben, those points have been a real exploration of where we are now, very frankly dealt with, and where we might go to, a vision of places that we might go to, which, for my part, I've hugely enjoyed.
1: Well, I've enjoyed it too, Richard. It's been great.
0: Thank you you ever so much. Stay
1: safe. And you. Speak soon.
0: That was the Planning Podcast. I told you, there was a lot in it. If you liked it, then please do share it. If you would like us to pick up and to develop some of those themes, then please just say, just get in touch. Shortly, we'll be turning to planning appeals and another packed interview, which I thoroughly enjoyed. This time with Bridget Rosewell, OBE and her dog. That is part one. And it will be followed by part two, a really useful inside track on inquiry practice from JCB. James Corbett Bircher, Planning and Environmental Barrister at No. 5 Chambers. Don't miss either of those, nor indeed the launch of a new book on planning appeals. Until then, stay safe. Thank you for being with us. Until the next time.